how could we possibly give to you, God, what you deserve? How could we possibly fulfill any need in you? And yet, out of your sheer grace, out of the abundance that you give to us, you are pleased to accept these gifts, along with all the other ways in which we contribute money, time, and our gifts to your people, to your work, to your gospel. So be pleased to receive these by your grace. Amen. We're now going to turn in our service to the Word of God, and we have for you this evening not one, not two, but three readings from the Bible. Two short ones, thank you, Anne, uh, and a longer one, which is the set reading for this evening's service. Yes, please do take your place. Um, I'm actually not going to give you the page numbers, partly because there are three readings, uh, beginning, middle, and end of the Bible. I'll give you the page number of the main reading uh, later, uh, but since they'll be read to you, uh, my invitation to you is to attend to what is being read and how it's being read, and, um, and just to consider uh, with us what might, uh, God might be saying. Now, the third reading that Paul Anne will be doing is uh, the longer reading, and at least at first, possibly second glance, is, what should we say, complex? Difficult, uh, even. I think if you can stay with it, you'll find it gets easier towards the end and we'll recognise them better. But please do aim to stick with it and then we'll seek, uh, by God's help, to give some exhibition of that passage and see what God wants to say to us from that particular part, portion of his word. Uh, The first uh, short reading is from the book of Genesis in chapter 14. And it goes like this. After Abram returned from defeating Kedoleoma and the kings allied with him, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Second short reading is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. 
He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of a power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law 
appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. The page number, 1205, Hebrews chapter 7, page 1205. Now I would like to encourage you to uh, have that passage open in front of you as we look at it together. What is the most vitally important and yet woefully neglected question confronting each member of the human race in every age and on all parts of the globe. Hint, it is not a political or an economic or a social or a psychological question. It's a question about God. The question of questions is this. How can we, weak and fallen creatures that we are, find acceptance with a holy and a sovereign God? This, I say, is the question of questions, the problem of problems, the dilemma of dilemmas. You can try to evade the question by denying God altogether. You can try out, uh, try and work out your own answer to the question, and we call those man-made solutions religions. And you can try to forget all about the question by filling your life with amusements and other distractions. But every conscience knows, deep down, that it cannot rest until it makes its peace with God. But the question of our acceptance with God is not only vitally important, it's also surpassingly difficult. You've probably heard about the so-called new atheists, people like Professor Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens. Now, they have a line of argument which is actually very interesting. It goes like this. We don't think there is a God, but even if there is, whatever makes you think that such a stupendous being as he or she or it must be would care a jot about us? We are tiny specks in a vast and forbidding universe. Surely any self-respecting God would have better things to do than to bother about us and our petty sins. Well, there's a grain of truth in that, I think. I must confess I get a little concerned when I hear Christians taking God and his love, as it were, for granted and talking glibly about the love of God as though God's love were the most obvious thing in the world. But God's love is not obvious at all. To quote an old children's hymn, it is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. How can we find God? A vitally important and yet terribly difficult question to answer. So difficult and yet so important is this business of reconciliation between God and humankind that it took an extraordinary move from God himself to achieve it. He sent a mediator. He provided a bridge over which men and women could pass. He provided one who would put things right between us and our maker. He provided the wherewithal. 
for that reconciliation with himself. Now, there's a word for anyone who acts in this kind of way, to bring two parties together, especially to bring uh, a human being and God together, and that word is priest. And this entire section of the letter to the Hebrews is devoted to explaining the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But the letter is addressed to Hebrews, isn't it? To Hebrew Christians. They were followers of Jesus Christ who'd come from a Jewish background. And Judaism already had plenty of priests, thank you very much. Ever since the days of Moses and Aaron, they'd had tabernacles and temples, altars and sacrifices, priests and high priests. What exactly does Jesus add to that mix? What's so special about the priesthood of Jesus? Well, I'm very glad you asked, replies our writer. And in verses 11 to 28 of chapter 7, he sets out a a series of remarkable contrasts between the old Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I thought it might be helpful if I could just extract extract out of that passage uh, on the screen there for you just how these contrasts are laid out in this chapter. Not taking them particularly in in order, but it's something like this. The Levitical priesthood, that's the priesthood at which uh, Aaron was the first. Aaron being, like all those priests of the tribe of Levi, um, and uh, the priesthood of Jesus contrasted according to this chapter. First of all, in the Leviticus priesthood, there were many priests. Verse 23 says, there have been many of those priests, whereas there is only one Jesus Christ, just the one. So many versus one is one point of contrast. A second point of contrast is the Levitical priesthood was based on heredity. It didn't matter so much about your character, but it mattered who your father was and who your grandfather was. They were all of the tribe of Levi, descended from Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, That's mentioned in verse 11 of uh, of this chapter. Whereas the priesthood of Jesus uh, is based on merit, Verse 16 is absolutely wonderful, where it says that his priesthood is based is not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Verse 16. The next contrast is that the priests of uh, the Levitical priests were themselves sinful. And so they offered sacrifices, verse 27 says, first for their own sins, whereas Jesus Christ was sinless. Verse 26 says, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. A further point of contrast is that the old uh, sacrifices were repeated. Verse 27 says they're repeated day after day. Whereas verse 27 also says that Jesus sacrificed once for all. The Levitical priests offered sacrifices in the form of animal blood. What did Jesus offer as a sacrifice? Himself. Verse 27. He offered himself. It follows then that uh, the Levitical priesthood was inadequate Verse 18 goes to far as to say it was weak and useless. 
whereas the priesthood of Jesus was and is completely effective. Verse 25 and following says, he is able to save completely. He meets our need. The Levitical uh, priesthood was temporary. Each of them was born, lived, and then died and had to be replaced. Verse 23. Whereas the priesthood of Jesus is permanent, he is a priest forever. Verse 17, because, verse 24, he lives. Excuse me, verse, um, uh, yes, verse 24, he lives forever. The older priesthood was not confirmed with an oath. Verse 20, others became priests without any oath. But there sitting in Psalm 110, if you recall, is a solemn oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, quoted in verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 7. So the old Levitical priesthood belonged to the an old covenant, whereas the priesthood of Jesus inaugurates a new covenant. Jesus, verse 22 says, has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And our writer will go on in the next chapter to explore and elaborate and develop that theme of a new covenant. And so finally, in the set of contrasts, the old Levitical priesthood is set aside, verse 18. Whereas the priesthood of Jesus, verse 19, is introduced, a better hope is introduced. Do you see then what a startling and striking set of contrast there is between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus? What we have with Jesus then is not simply an improvement uh, on the old Levitical priesthood. We have rather an entirely different order of priesthood. And yet it was not, you know, any kind of afterthought on God's part. It was not as if God had said, well, the old priesthood isn't working too well, is it? Let's try something different and see if that's any better. No, this model for the priesthood of Jesus, for this entirely different order of priesthood, was there all along. Antedating, preceding even, the Levitical priesthood. And that's where our old friend Melchizedek comes in. Because verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7 take us back to Genesis chapter 14, the very first book of the Bible, which records how, after Abraham had won a battle, this Melchizedek came out and met him. His name, we are told, means king of righteousness. He was king of a place called Salem. That's probably Jerusalem. And Salem means peace, like Shalom means peace. Scripture ignores Melchizedek's family credentials. There's no mention either of his ancestors or his successors. And what is more, in blessing Abraham and in receiving tithes from Abraham, Melchizedek shows himself to be greater than Abraham and therefore greater than all of Abraham's descendants. You've really got to get this idea in ancient cultures about the, the greatness of one's seniors. The father is greater than the son. The grandfather greater than the, the father. Rather more like in Chinese culture than in our own culture today, when if you're 60, you're over the hill. 
So right there in the very first book of the Bible, centuries before the time of Moses and Aaron and the time of the Levitical priesthood, we find a model for a different and greater order. So we fast forward a thousand years and it's picked up in one of the most celebrated of all the Old Testament passages. There is no Old Testament passage quoted more frequently than Psalm 110. No, not even Isaiah 53 in the New Testament. 19 times the New Testament goes back to that psalm and quotes it. And in that psalm you find a remarkable prophecy in which King David declares to somebody that he calls, great king as he is, my Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Fast forward another thousand years and the writer of the Hebrews confirms it. David was talking about Messiah. David was talking about the Christ. And even though the writer of the Hebrews arrives at his conclusion about the entire perfection, adequacy, suitableness of the priesthood of Jesus, even though he arrives at that conclusion in a way that seems strange to us today, because we don't come, most of us presumably, from a Jewish background... The conclusion itself is just as relevant now as it was then. Let me just spell that out now in two ways. The relevance of this conclusion for us today. The fact that Jesus is an entirely satisfactory and effective priest. First, because of this, we can have confidence to come to God ourselves. There is so much in Hebrews about approaching God, coming to God access to God. Now we have a great priest, a living bridge, a wonderful mediator. Speaking of mediators, one of the most memorable moments in the opening ceremony of the Olympics was that. When Her Majesty Queen turned turned comic actress and became a Bond girl for a moment with, uh, with uh, what's his name, Daniel Craig, being 007 and uh, fetching her and escorting her from the palace uh, to the stadium. How did they pull that off? How if it did, how did they persuade Her Majesty to, to do that? How did Danny Boyle and his team ever even get access to the Queen, let alone persuade her to, to do this? There must have been an intermediary, don't you think? There must have been a mediator, and so there was. Do you know his name? Edward Young. Deputy Private Secretary to the Queen, but who had previously worked for Lord Coe. And so in the perfect position to pull the palace and the Olympics together in that way. And a pretty effective mediator in that particular respect, wouldn't you say? How much more can we have confidence to come to God through the mediator whom God himself has provided and who entirely meets our need? Through him, through Jesus, we can come with confidence to God in penitence, knowing that our sins will be forgiven, in worship, believing that our Lord will be pleased to accept our humble adoration, and in prayer, trusting that our Heavenly Father will hear and answer our faltering petitions. We can have confidence to come to God ourselves. But the second part of the conclusion is this. We can have confidence to commend Jesus to others. 
When Christians sometimes quote, as they do, the words of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, they're sometimes accused of arrogance. What makes you so sure of that, people will say. As I was pondering this, I glanced out at the busy road that runs past our house. And um, look something like that. Um, cycles, motorbikes, cars, vans and lorries fly past in both directions. However, can you get across it safely? Shut your eyes and hope for the best? No, there's a pedestrian crossing right there. If I were to say to you, that pedestrian crossing is the only safe and effective way across this section of road, I don't think you'd accuse me of arrogance, would you? You'd, you would say that I was being uh, that uh, that I was giving you some sensible and truthful information and advice. In the same way, we can have confidence to commend Jesus as the only safe and effective way to God, just as the writer to the Hebrews did all those years ago. Nothing less than Jesus will suffice. Nothing more than Jesus is needed. Here we have, indeed, the solution to the age-old problem that presses on every needy conscience. Here is the answer to the perennial question, how can I approach a God? How can I approach God? Yes, we can commend Jesus with confidence. For, as that wonderful verse 25 says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the story of the Bible, which does not introduce Jesus as some complete novelty, but shows how he has been promised and expected and looked for since the very beginning. He is not an afterthought, but your wonderful plan for us, for all people, for the entire cosmos. Teach us what it means to enter into your presence through him with boldness and give us confidence to commend Jesus with all truthfulness and tact and love in word and in deed in the days and weeks to come. Amen.